we now prepare by looking into God's Word. Uh, we've looked at uh, the book of Philemon, and we look at uh, Philemon and Onesiphorus. Uh, what is it called? Onesiphorus? What is it? Okay, Onesiphorus, which means useful in Greek. And then we looked at uh, Abigail in uh, the Old Testament. Abigail, the brilliant and the beautiful, who had the lowest rung on the ladder. And she, with a wealthy husband and a kingly uh, bandit, turned out to be the only one that had life-giving words in the situation. And now we turn to another remarkable personage in uh, Scripture and in the history of Christendom and indeed in the history of the world. And this is uh, Lydia. Lydia. Now, I know we have at least one Lydia, don't we? Yes. Yes. Downstairs. Because she's young. And this occurs during, during Paul's first missionary journey. It begins in chapter 16. And what I hope that we accomplish as we look at the story of Lydia is we understand uh, how God works in our lives to bring about changed lives. How God works in order to bring about changed lives. Because as much as we have a responsibility as citizens, particularly in a republic like America, to uh, vote and to work uh, with our talent and time and treasure to bring about a political uh, state as such that follows scripture as much as we can because that will be the healthiest state for everyone. Um, we know that uh, God works to change hearts. So Christians are interesting. We kind of do two things. We have dual citizenship. One is in heaven and one is here on the earth. And we have responsibilities in both spheres. We shouldn't confuse those spheres, but we should be loyal and active and faithful in both those spheres, the heavenly and the, and the earthly, the political and the Christian church. And they exist uh, side by side along with the family, the way God has ordained it. And we have roles and responsibilities in all those areas. So as citizens, we work hard in order to uh, bring about the best situation for ourselves, our family, and our fellow citizens, and indeed the world. Uh, but as Christians, we work hard to help people come to know God. Because we know that without some people that know God, there wouldn't be any salt or light in society. And there are civilizations have been and are on the earth right now that have very few Christians. And the darkness is almost impenetrable. And the things that go on in those countries are cruel and heartless and just difficult to live with, to rear families. But where the light and the salt of Christianity has gone, um, life itself is more valued because we think people are created in the image of God. Women are more valued because we believe that they have a role along with men in society and family. Now you say, well, that's nothing new. In, in the history of, of, of human, humankind and in places in the world right now, that's not true. We value children. They're just not little adults. They're precious gifts from God. We value our liberties as well as we value the role of government. And so we, as Christians, want as many people to become Christians as possible. 
And this story is about how that happens. It begins in chapter 16. This is Paul's first missionary journey. Verse 1, he came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. And then down verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Now you're thinking, well, where is that at? You know, uh, Sandy and I go from state to state and church to church, being a purposeful interim pastor. And uh, we always enjoy getting to know new place names. And so for the first year that we're here, we're usually there for a year. Someone, where are you from? Well, I'm from so-and-so. And, of course, I have this blank expression on my face because I have no idea where that is. And then there'll be a re-helpful and say, oh, that's next to, you know, this town. Oh, okay, okay, that helped a lot. Uh, it's like the farmer said one time, someone stopped and was asking him directions. And he said, you go down about two miles down this road, and you turn right where the old barn used to be before we tore it down. And then you go down that road. These uh, cities are in Asia Minor. When Alexander the Great conquered uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, he brought Greek language and Greek culture to it. So at that time, Egypt and Palestine and Israel and Asia Minor were all Greeks, but Greek language had uh, Greek culture. And so you would be just at home in Asia Minor as you would be in Greece or Rome or Spain. And that was before the invasion of Islam and for the Ottoman Turks. And now that whole country is uh, Muslim and is, has a different culture and a different value of life and a different worldview than Christianity. But at that time, it was all Greek. And so Paul, Paul could travel freely and share the gospel of what we call Asia Minor. Now, what would happen, and he grew up in that area. And there were a lot of Christian church there. Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, remember the books in the Bible. But when you cross the Aegean Sea, you're actually going from Asia to Europe. Now you're in Greece. In fact, uh, if you go to Constantinople, excuse me, they changed it to Istanbul. There is a bridge, the Galata Bridge. And when you drive across that bridge, you're driving from Asia to Europe. And that's why Turkey is so important, because it's at strategic crossroads. And so this is significant because Paul is going to cross the Aegean Sea, and he is going to invade pagan, heathen Europe, where many of our ancestors came from. And this little band, it was Paul and maybe four, five, six others that always traveled together, is going to invade this continent of darkness and they're going to bring with them a light that once lit spread throughout the whole continent until the whole continent was following Christ. And then when they spread their colonies to Africa and India and America, they brought that light with them. So it cannot be uh, overstated how important it is that Paul is going from Asia to Europe. But now, did Paul do that strategically? Did he have a plan? Well, let's read what happened. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This is kind of South Asia Minor. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Well, they were trying to preach where they'd had success before, and the Holy Spirit stops them. It doesn't say how. Now, maybe the road was blocked. Maybe there was a flood. 
Maybe there were some bandits, whatever. When they came to the border of Mysia, which is closer to the Aegean, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And Troas, remember Troy? Troas is on the water, the Aegean Sea. In other words, they couldn't go north, they couldn't go south, they couldn't go east. The only place left was west and north. And when you get there to Troas, you're at the Aegean Sea. So where do you go now? Now it's interesting. You would think that God would just say to Paul, Hey, Paul, I want you to go to Europe, Greece, Philippi. He didn't do that. Somehow he used circumstances. The first point I want to bring across to you is God is working providentially. God's providence is at work. And he uses circumstances. We should not always be bent out of shape because circumstances move against us. Because God, using ordinary means, may be working here to bring about his purpose. In fact, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, uh, large and short of catechism. This is our standard for belief in uh, Reformed Presbyterian churches in Europe and in the West. And it says, Providence... God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. In other words, God providentially uses everything in the world according to his great wisdom and foreknowledge to bring about his purposes for the glory of himself and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is called providence when the scripture says this is what happened and God was in control. And that's why God said to Pharaoh in the scripture that was read, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might be glorified. So it was going on in the Old Testament. It's going on in the New Testament. We bent down to Troas, and he's saying, well, where do we go next? During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, which is across the water in Greece. Well, actually, it was, it was and is called Macedonia, but we call it Greece. Standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to these people. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, that was an island in the Aegean, and the next day on to Neapolis, which is the seaside town like Troy is on the Asian side. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Now, Philippi is an interesting, it's a Roman capital. It's a Roman capital, uh, just like Ephesus was. So it's a wealthy place, like a county seat or a state capital. There are roads coming in and out so that soldiers can march and messengers can travel. And it's also the place where Octavius was in a battle with Brutus and Cassius, so that Octavius would become the first Caesar. Uh, they discovered gold there, and it uh, had a gold rush, and it became uh, 
a consequential city. So they're not stopping at Troas. They're not stopping at Neapolis. They're going on to Philippi. So when they get there on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. The reason for that was that in any city, the basic rule was if you had 10 families, 10 men, 10 husbands, 10 head of household, then you could build a synagogue. But it took 10. And that's an interesting, someone says, well, how much does it take to start a church? Well, if you have 10 families and they're each tithing 10%, then they can provide an equal salary to what they're getting to a pastor. See how that works? So if you've got 10 families, you can do a synagogue. But they didn't have 10 in Philippi. So there was a backup plan that let's meet down by the river. There's some flat ground down there. It's pleasant with the water and everything. Wash our feet off because they get dirty. So outside every city, if there was no synagogue, there would usually be a group of Jews meeting down by the river uh, on the Sabbath. And that's what Paul is seeking. And uh, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down. It's a place of prayer because there's no mail. To, they don't have copies of the scrolls. You can't have that. You've got to have a synagogue in the storage area to keep them dry and protected and everything. So they're going to pray. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. There you go. There you go. Um, you'll always find women leading the charge when it's spiritual and when there's a church. Now, why is that? Now, we men know it's because we're doofuses, but we're not going to say that. Instead of being negative about men, we're going to be positive about women and be thankful for their sensitivity and their relationship. They just find it easier maybe to relate to God. But anyway, there's a group of women who gather there, and Paul said, well, it's a bunch of women. Why bother with them? He didn't do that. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a deal in purple cloth. Now, purple cloth is a big deal here. It was made from shellfish. It was, uh, there was an industry over in Asia Minor, okay, and, uh, and Thyatira. And it was expensive cloth because it was hard to make. You had to take the shellfish and extract the blue, and then you had to dye and had to have the cloth. So she's dealing with an expensive upgrade um, product here. And she's probably from Thyatira where they were doing it. So she has set up a, a uh, distribution center, a sales office over here in Philippi. So she's in a country that's not hers, and she's in a town that's not hers, and she's running this business. And it must be, uh, has some shekels or money because it's an expensive product. In fact, by 800 AD, uh, the, the Greek word for this is porphyry. Uh, porphyry means purple in Greek. And in the uh, Byzantine capital, in Byzantium, which was in Constantinople, there's a huge palace, and there was a pavilion off to the side because the way they were running around back in those days, you never know if a child was a legitimate heir, you know, like the English. There's so many heirs and counts and dukes running around. Well, what is he? Well, he's an illegitimate son. He can never be king, but he's got royal blood. So how are they going to figure out who's the legitimate heir? So they had this pavilion, and that's where the queen would give birth. So any child born in that pavilion, uh, you know, would be legitimate, okay? And so they even came up with a term for it, uh, uh, perogenitos. In fact, that was the name 
like it'd be uh, Joseph II Paragenitas. Generation meaning born. Born to the purple. You ever heard that term? Born to the purple? He's born in the room. They had uh, purple, blue uh, hangings, dyed. See, wallpaper is a French invention. It's a cheap imitation of, of, of wall hangings, woven uh, cloth that they would hang all around the ugly walls. And it would also be insulation for sound and for heating and cooling. And so they had these purple curtains there in Constantinople. And that was the purple room, the, uh, how did I pronounce it? The porphyry chamber. And that's where they were born. Well, that's how, uh, and then they said by 800 AD, only nobility can have porphyry, the purple color. So if you saw anybody with this color, you knew that they were uh, royal. But in this time, if you saw someone with purple, you knew that they were expensive. Now, how do we do that? We do it with homes. We do it with cars, you know, this type of thing. we got to have some way to tell people that, you know, you know, in this church, we reserve the front seats for the wealthy. <laughs> well, this was what she was doing. So she had a business. Just to let you what's going on here. She was a worshiper of God. Okay, first providence. God worked it so that this band of evangelists would end up in Philippi down by the river. Now, that should tell you something about God and his people. Now, here's Paul the apostle. He was a great Jewish teacher, and then he became an apostle. He wrote Romans, the most deep and explanatory theological book that we have in the Bible. He wrote 1 Corinthians 13, describing what love is. Uh, he is the, an apostle. And God has no problem at all sending him stumbling around Asia Minor, trying to go here and there. He's busy. He's got a team with him. He's out sharing the gospel. He's got people to witness to. And God says, I've got this child of mine, this lady across the Aegean Sea over here in Philippi. And I am determined that she hear the gospel and become born again and become a part of the body of Christ and spend eternity with me. That's how far God will go to find his children. And here's what happened. That's, that, that's the providence of God. Now, here's the grace of God. She was a worshiper of God. She was a pagan woman. She was not Jewish, living in a pagan society where she never heard on radio or television about God. See, there were no Bibles. There were no tracks. There were no cassette tapes. There was no thumb drives. I mean, there's nothing. And somehow God had graciously worked in her life that she, her, her light came into her brain and softness into her heart. And she said, look at those stars. Look at that sun. Look at the seasons. Look at the flowers. Look at my body. He said, there's got to be a God that made all this. And he must be great and powerful. And I'm a human being of frailty, and it's called the fear of God, the worship of God. 
the consciousness of God. And that doesn't happen naturally, nor to everyone. It only happens to those that God gives the grace so that the dark clouds in the brain would be blown away. And it's something would start making sense. And then the hard heart would be softened. And the person is able to look up and say, there is a God. And the heart says, I'd like to know that God. And she was a worshiper of God, of what she knew. Now, let me ask you this. Do you have a darkened mind? Do you find the things about God hard to understand? Do you look up at the sky and say, boy, ain't evolution great? Do you look at the plants and say, a billion years and a few cells and anybody could grow this plant? Do you look at your human body and say, oh, a billion years and evolution and anybody can grow a human body? Do you look at a flower and its beauty and think, oh, that's just an accident? Well, if you do that, then you're normal. The way of all flesh. But if you look at all those things and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I see rocks piled up on a trail when I'm hiking, I think intelligence. Somebody pile them rocks. And if you think that, it's the grace of God working in your mind. And if you think, I'd like to know that more about that God, that's the grace of God working in your heart. So what do you do when you start feeling those stirrings? Same thing when you feel stirrings of hunger. You seek food. If you feel stirrings about God, seek God. And that's what she was. By the grace of God, she was a God worshiper, a God fearer. And so often when we go out and share the gospel with people, we don't know if they're dark of mind and hard of heart. We don't know if God is working in their lives graciously. We don't know where they are. That's not our job. We put that seed out there, rocky, hard, Fertile soil, it doesn't matter. We are just prodigious with sharing the gospel. Are you breathing? Let me share the gospel with you. That's our only requirement. Are you breathing? We're going to share with you. Because for all we know, God may be working in your life. And for all I know, God has providentially put me here with you. For all I know, some of you God has providentially brought here today. And the grace of God is working in your heart. Now, those things come together, and here's what happened next. The Lord opened her heart to respond to God's message. The Lord opened her heart to respond to God's message. Her heart had to be open because we are naturally born with hard hearts. And so now God is opening her heart. And then what happened? She believes well, which is it? Is it God working in her heart or is she believing? Yes. It's both. Almost simultaneously. And that's what's happening here. See, that's the grace of God working in her life and now opening her heart. That's providence. That's grace. Oh, I got some blanks here. Let me give you blanks. Because, how the gospel family, because God purposed it. Because God purposed it. God has a purpose, and he used providence to bring the gospel to her. Well, how the gospel opened Lydia's heart, change began with her mind, 
and affected her heart. It began with her mind and affected her heart. See what it says there? The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You can't change people through friendship. You can win a hearing through friendship. Let's not be confused. If you make friends who are seeking God, that will not save them. Until someone, and hopefully you, says the word of God to them, this is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, he rose again from the third day, and whosoever believes on him shall be saved. Unless you say those words, the means that God uses, the mind is not engaged and the heart cannot believe. See, that's what it says. Paul preached the message and the Lord opened her heart to respond. And it tells us so clearly that's the means. Change began with her mind and then affected her heart. Now, look what happened. There were signs. How do we know if the medicine is going to work? Well, we're going to watch the person's temperature. We're going to watch their oxygen saturation in their, in their finger. We're going to check their blood. We, you know, we're going to do all these tests. We're looking for signs that the medicine is curing the disease. Well, what are the signs that a person has understood with their mind and believed in their heart the message of Jesus Christ. Well, there are four here that pop up. When she and the members of her household were baptized, the first sign of someone responding to the gospel is obedience. Under A, obedience is the first sign. She immediately said, let me be baptized. Baptism is not magical. Is water. And we, we sprinkle and we pour. Some churches immerse. It's not magical. It is simply an outward sign. It's an outward sign. The way when you give your offering, it's an outward sign that you trust God. And you want to be supportive of his work. When we partake of the bread and the cup here, they're not going to change in essence. It's going to be a sign to us of the broken body of Christ and the shed blood, blood of Christ. Baptism was a sign that she was a member of the covenant family of God. That God made a covenant through Jesus Christ. If you will accept his payment for my sin, then I will give you new life and you will be part of the family of God. And baptism is a sign. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? If you haven't, I'll be glad to talk to you about that. Because the first thing that she did was she was baptized and her whole household. She brought her whole household with her. See her influence? Had her whole, well, a dozen, 25, 30 people. And they're all down there with her worshiping. And she had influenced them and they heard and believed. In fact, the rest of this chapter talks about the Philippian jailer. And in verse 31, Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and her household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. 
Lydia, immediately. Philippian jailer, immediately. Obedience is the first sign that the gospel has worked in a person's life. Well, what is the second sign? And these are not just signs of, 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 of response to the gospel, of new life flowing through the veins. These are examples to us. That's what Hebrews says. These things are written to be examples for us. So we have this detailed story of the first believer in Europe, and it's given to us so that we can say, what does it look like when a person comes to Christ? So that we have a standard, so that we can look for these signs and we can teach these signs. The first is obedience, and, and baptism is just one. It might be that something sexual in your life that has to be corrected. Maybe you're living with someone or have a relationship with someone that you're not married to, and you find, I can't do that anymore. Maybe you have pornography. Maybe you have a drinking problem. Maybe you're greedy. Maybe you don't treat your husband, your wife, or your children the way that they should be treated. And now, being part of Born Again is that your conscience starts telling you this is not what Jesus wants. And then that obedience starts working itself out. Well, what's the second thing we see in this change woman's life? And, he, and she says, after they were baptized, she invited us to her home. Hospitality. Hospitality. The, uh, during the crusade, some of the knights set up inns and where they could uh, feed people and they could spend the night as they travel. And then they set up hospitals and they were called hospitalers. Hospitalers hospitality, hospital. She said, come to my home. Wash your feet. Take of the food. Find a bed to rest and some quiet away from the noisy city. Hospitality. That's how you can tell Christianity has taken a foothold because there's hospitality. Will you join us for hospitality at 1215 downstairs? It's open to everyone hospitality. And, and, this, and here's the next one. See, if you can, and, and she invited us to her home, and Paul and Luke, and this little band of evangelists, all male, said, no, that's not a good idea. You're a single woman. You're well known in the city because you're a merchant. It's not a good idea for this strange, unknown band of men to go and stay at your house. The gossip will just be everywhere, okay? Not a good idea. We'll go down to the Holiday Inn. And she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. She was not going to take no for an answer. I love it. She, no, that's not a good idea. Look, now what are they going to say? They shared the gospel with her and just baptized her. They, they were convinced that she was a believer. Well, if you consider me a believer, come stay at my house. Persuasive. Persuasive. Christians have to learn to be persuasive. We have to learn to use arguments. We have to learn to help people understand how God is working in the world. And how following God's will is so much healthier and happier and wholesome for everyone. Persuasion. It comes from a, a, a Greek and then Latin word, 
Per means through to completion, and suader means advise. So persuasion is when you advise someone to the point that they finish the job, that the desired goal is achieved. That's persuasion. You're not persuaded if you think, well, that's a good idea. I'll think about it. That's not persuasion. It's persuasion is that's a good idea. I'm going to do it. She found a way. Now, see, early Christians are obedient, hospitable, and persuasive. They study how to be persuasive in a fallen and dark world. Now, let me give you the final one. Oh, oh let, me, let me do this. Uh, and what's, this, what's the last sentence in that verse, in verse 15? And she persuaded us. I can just see Luke the writer. Here's Paul. No, no, we don't need to do that. We're going to go on down the holiday inn. And she says, well, if you consider me a believer, you just baptize me. Come and stay at my house. And Paul says, you got me. You got me. You got me. And then Luke is watching this. And he says, and she persuaded us. Can you believe that? She persuaded us. There are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, that when someone shared the gospel with them, they said, no way. No way. And then they find themselves in a church, at a Bible study, accepting Christ. And they just shake their head and say, he persuaded me. How did I get here? He persuaded me. And what's the final thing? Well, the rest of the story is... They were in uh, Philippi preaching, and there was this woman that had a demon spirit, and she could predict the future. How about that? And uh, people were making money off of her, you can imagine. But the demon spirit recognized that these were apostles from Jesus Christ, and every time she saw them, she's following them, and she's got this, she's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. And are telling you the way to be saved. Well, Paul said, that's okay for a day or two. And as the weeks went by, he just got tired of this girl. Everywhere, she's breaking up meetings and distracting people and harming persuasion. So she finally turned around there and said, demon spirit, leave her. Well, the guys making money got pretty upset. And so they went to the officials and made false accusations. See, there were false accusations back then, too. And they threw them in jail. Oh, not before they whipped them until their bones showed. And so they're in the jail at midnight singing, and God throws all the jail doors open. And the jailer says, hey, I'm going to kill myself. He said, don't do that. We're all here. The jailer becomes a Christian. Next morning, Paul, they said, okay, you guys can go get out of town. No, we're Roman citizens. We're not doormat Christians. We are citizens and we are going to claim our citizenship and vote and speak. And said, you beat us without a trial. And they said, oh boy, we're in trouble. You don't do that to Roman citizens. So the mayor and the counselors came down and said, would you please leave town? No, we're going to get cleaned up and have some breakfast. And where did they go? They've been publicly beaten and put in jail. Where did they go? To Lydia's house. Courage. That's the last one. Courage. It took guts to publicly identify 
with someone who had been publicly condemned and beaten and put in jail. But this courageous woman said, these are my people. They represent my God. And I'm going to publicly stand with them. You see that? Those are the signs. This is how Lydia's life was changed. She became obedient to the gospel, hospitable, persuasive, and courageous. Well, that happened immediately in her life. But it doesn't always happen immediately in our lives, does it? It takes a while. And so we need things like baptism and the Lord's Supper to help us remind who God is and help us to continue following him. So let me pray. We're going to sing together, and then we're going to come to this table. Father, we thank you for Lydia, the first believer in Europe, for how you worked in her life providentially and graciously and purposefully, how she heard the gospel and then her heart responded, mind and heart, and how she sowed obedience, hospitality, persuasion, and obedience. Father, let her be a pattern to us, the first believer in Europe. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.